the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 242 for Friday, February 5th, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Geek Cab. It's not just for breakfast anymore, but today it is. <laughs> I'm Dave Hamilton in Durham, New Hampshire. John in front of Fairfield, Connecticut, and I have my breakfast, and also I have my freshly ground coffee, black. Are you? Do you add water to that, or you just eat it kind of ground <laughs> <No>. up? Like, <laughs> at least like, <laughs> no, I don't just grind up the beans and eat them. I add some hot water. So oh, okay, that's nice. Do you filter out the beans, or do you just sort of let them filter through your teeth? Nope. No, I use a conventional <laughs> coffee maker. That's good. Uh, all right, so we have. Uh, we, I'm traveling on Monday to MacWorld Expo. I've got uh, some things going on this weekend, so John and I figured the best bet, the safest bet, was to get a show out today. And of course, we have more than enough material from uh, from all of you to keep us going. So let's dive right in and let's hear from Mike because he it's early in the day, and uh, what Mike does is is a great thing to start us early in the day. Hey, John and Dave. Throwing you guys a cream puff today. I know it's going to be a piece of cake for you to answer this one. Although I don't know the answer. I'm a Linux user, and uh, if this was on a Linux box, I'd have it solved in about 20 seconds. Nevertheless, I've got an iMac here, a G5 iMac that my kids share accounts on. One of the children forgot his password. So as the uh, admin who also has an account on the machine, I went in and reset his password. However, that, w that worked fine. When he logs on, his keychain asks him for his passphrase um, so that he can have access to all of the um, authentications that his keychain provides. And the resetting of his password did not reset the keychain password. And because he doesn't remember his original password, we can't make use of that keychain. So I don't know if... Um, the only solution is to delete it, and if so, how do I do that? Or is there a way to change or reset the password for the keychain and um, maintain all of his uh, credentials that he's stored up there in the keychain? Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Mike. Uh, and thanks for the cream puff. Uh, although, you know, there, there's some nuances here, I think, John, right? Um I don't think it's exactly a cream puff, though. We have to keep Mike's, uh, uh, we have to, uh, he said he's a Linux, uh, Linux guy. So we'll have to make note of that when we have a Linux problem. Thank that's you. right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so to me, uh, the, the, well, if you read the knowledge base and all of that, the simple answer is exactly as Mike, you described when you reset the user account password, like you did, it does not change the keychain password. The keychain password then needs to be changed separately. And in order to do it, you need to have the old password as well as whatever you want to set it to new. Uh, as an aside, if you keep the two synced up, it will automatically open your keychain uh, if you choose that when uh, when you log into the machine. But for you, Mike, uh, the official answer is no, there is no way now. I did read one report, John, and, and you can I, I don't know if you if you saw this, but I did read one report that said, yes, that's the official answer. However, if you go into keychain access, choose keychain first aid from the keychain access menu and choose to repair, sometimes 
that will reset the keychain to the current user's password. Now, I've never experienced this, but it's certainly worth a shot, Mike, because the other answer is walk, abandon that old keychain, walk away. Do you, do you have any thoughts uh, on that, John? Oh, I got plenty of thoughts here. So I, I, I dug into this and I have a number of suggestions. Now, first off, okay. um, this could be an opportunity for tough love. I mean, children should learn that there are consequences to their actions. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm not a parent. And I probably shouldn't be. Anyways. Um, but uh, Dave, you actually hit upon uh, one thing that I found is that if you do go to Keychain Access, preference, uh, I'm sorry. Yes, Keychain Access, preferences, First, A, there will be a checkbox that says synchronize logging keychain password with account. Uh, I think that's an extension of what you suggested. So maybe that has to be checked first before you choose yes. repair. Oh. That's my suspicion. Okay. Now, that's one option. Yeah. The second option, I'm going to give you three. Good. The second option, I notice this in keychain. Oh, another thing, back up the keychain before you do any of these. Yeah. And we'll talk, actually, give us the suggestions. We'll talk about how to yes. back up and how to delete at the end so right. we can consolidate right. that. Yeah. All right. The other one I noticed, there's something keychain access, preferences, general, reset keychain syncing. And the description of that looking in the article is is changes the passwords used for keychain syncing to the passwords on this computer. Okay, so shot. that would be that would be for mobile me syncing of the keychain, I think, is, is what that's for. I'm wondering about what they mean by syncing here. That's that's the thing I'm unclear on when they say syncing. If it's My syncing the keychain to your user accounts or to oh. mobile me. Yeah, my guess. Is, well, I, I would have assumed mobile me, but uh, yes, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then there is a, um, a third thing. There's a support article. I think it's mobile me prompted for password when syncing keychains. Um, and it's knowledge base article TS one, one, eight, one. And they have a line in there that says, if you are prompted for the keychain password of a computer to which you no longer have access, or if you are prompted for a keychain password that you do not remember, you can reset the master keychain password file used during syncing. And it gets into some command line uh, stuff that okay. you can try. So I think I, I read that article, and I think what they walk you through is throwing out the old keychain file and starting a new one, essentially. Um, yeah, which is uh, which is which is, of course, non-optimal. But but I think uh, unless you get lucky with the keychain repair, Mike, I think that's what that's the path you're heading down on this. Uh, so how to throw away the old keychain or or how to back it up first before you start mucking with any of this. Uh, go into your user folder or the user folder of the affected user. Go into library, go into keychains and in there. Assuming it's leopard or later, so 10.5 or 10.6, you'll see the main keychain is named login.keychain. Now, if it was if this machine has been upgraded through the years, uh, and this goes for all of you, prior to 10.5 leopard, the keychain shared your short username. So for me, my keychain's name was Dave dot keychain and there was no login dot keychain to speak of or at least not a login dot keychain that had any valuable data in 10.5 that changed but if you've been upgrading through you may or may not have made that particular migration you may still have the old one so uh, the idea is uh, first go in here and back it up and to back it up you can simply highlight the keychain go to the file menu in the finder and choose duplicate and just make a copy of it you can leave the copy right there if you want or to be very safe you can drag it out to the desktop 
that that will take that will make a backup. Uh, if you have to create a new keychain, you just remove it from here. Go into keychain, and uh, I'm not going to open up keychain access because it'll make your audio stutter, John. But maybe you can uh, you can open it up and. Uh, Oh, I was able to get it open. Okay. And and you go to uh, the file menu, you choose new keychain, and then you highlight, you, you make a new keychain, call it login, then highlight that keychain and go to the back to the file menu. And at the bottom, it says make login keychain default, and then it'll become bold in the list. And then that should begin heading you down the path to uh, resolution. Yeah. Any Anything there, John? I suppose. And you know, it may, It'd be worth considering having a, a strategy. Maybe have the kids scribble it down on a piece of paper and put it in a safe or something. I'm not. I'm not kidding on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, with with my kids, because this is yeah, this is an interesting issue. With my kids, I know their keychain passwords. Uh, well, I know their user account passwords, and we leave their user account and keychain passwords in sync. Um, they've set them to things that they will not forget, uh, but. But even still, I, I want to know their user password so that I can log in as them anytime. And, and that's just that's just kind of how it goes as me being dad. You know, I get to be the benevolent dictator. There's no democracy going on here, you know, at least not at that level. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's uh, that's how it goes. And then that way there's there's we never have this problem. Or perhaps pick a, a password that is not so clever that you're going to forget it. And I think uh, one common thing is to. Uh, you know, maybe replace words with numbers like four instead of F O R or something like that. But but something that's not um, because I noticed this is a you know when you do create an account in the you know or or if you you do a password yeah I mean we're not going to go down the path of uh, choosing a good password right now that <laughs> that could be a whole episode in itself. yeah but um yeah but try to make it hard enough to guess or you know we're not so I'm sorry obscure easy enough to obscure guess. enough to guess. Uh, obscure enough not to for for a, a a non-informed person not to guess. Is there too many negatives in that phrase? We better move on. Yeah. Yes. All right. Moving on uh, to Jeff, and I got to find Jeff here. Uh, and Jeff, Jeff, is this question and a follow-up kind of all baked into one? Kind of a smackdown, I think. I, maybe it is a little bit of a smackdown. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So Jeff says. Uh, Oh, let's see. I'm seeing my thoughts to Jeff. I was very surprised to hear both of you say that you run in admin accounts all the time. This is very dangerous for many reasons, but the biggest reason is security. In fact, this is why Windows users are typically so vulnerable to malware, etc. They run with admin accounts almost exclusively. The big reasons for this is the default configuration for Windows and user accounts do not work very well in Windows. Because Mac OS X is based on Unix, which was always meant to have user accounts, Mac OS X does a very good job with user accounts. I have five Macs that all run non-admin accounts and have been for three plus years. Occasionally, I run into an application that requires you to have an admin rights to install, but that's very infrequent. I never run in my admin account. Malware is rare for the Mac, but malware can do very little without admin privileges in Unix. This is a good practice for any Mac user. Admin or root privileges should be used when you really need them and not for everyday work. I think you should tell your listeners that this is a best practice. Okay. Uh, so SmackDown received and now, uh, but, but, but I have some, I have some thoughts, I guess, I guess I should share my, based on what I think you're going to say, John, I guess I should share my thoughts first and then, and then let you counter. Is that, does that sound about right? Cause so. you, okay. Uh, so on the surface, I agree 100% user accounts are safer than admin accounts. However, it's important to note that in Mac OS X, there's actually three categories of accounts. 
There is the super user account, which has all privileges all of the time. There are what Apple calls admin accounts, which have, uh, well, let's skip those. And we'll, we'll talk about those in a minute. And then there are user accounts, which have user privileges only all of the time. Admin accounts, which sit in the middle, are really nothing more than user. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, John, but I think I've got this right after my years of Unix as well. Admin accounts are user accounts that are that belong to a special group that allow them to gain admin rights by authenticating with their password. Uh, so by and, and, and the default account that you create when you get a Mac and it walks you through the beautiful little setup and all that, it creates one of those middle of the road admin accounts. More often than not, you're running as a user. If you need admin privileges to do something, the computer asks you for your password. This happens when, for example, you want to change your network settings or you want to install an app into the applications folder or make some other change that your user account does not have access to do. So it is a little bit safer in the middle there, uh, you know, running as the root user, which would be the super user, all admin privileges all the time uh, is not safe. And I don't do that. Apple doesn't let you do that out of the box without kind of mucking with things. So uh, so that's why I feel safe in an excuse me, in an admin account, uh, because for the most part, I'm not authenticated up. Uh, and it's the same way that I work with our, our Unix boxes that we host on or whatever. I, I log into them. I'm a user account. I'm not privileged unless I need to make a change that's privileged. I, I use sudo because I'm doing it all from the command line. I go up, I do my privileges, and then boom, I'm out. Uh, there's usually a time limit that uh, if you had inactivity, it'll bounce you out. And I think app, with Apple, it's five minutes uh, so that if you, if you authenticate your account to, for super user privileges, it kind of bumps you out after five minutes of not using them. But I think, I think that's right. Somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. So, so that's, that's my feeling. That's why, that's why I do that. Uh, And, and, you know, as an aside, windows is based on VMS, right? Since windows 2000, which includes XP and and everything since then, which was also built for multi-user, you know, back, back in the day of, of Unix. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. John. Yeah. Um, the Windows comment, I would say, and I think they've gotten better at this, but the problem with Windows in the past is that um, it wouldn't ask you for authentication when it did a lot of things. Uh, OS ah. X, of course, does that quite often. And the newer version of Windows, uh, the, though sometimes it gets really annoying, will put all sorts of warnings in, in your way when it detects something okay. uh, unusual happening. So what I did is I checked this out. Now, now this is something I, I think we got to dig into a little, uh, a little bit. So when you create a new account, at least under Snow Leopard, you get uh, four choices. You get administrator, you get standard. That's so what right. we're calling a user account is a standard account. Now, interestingly enough, when you create a standard account, there is a checkbox that says, allow user to administer this computer. <laughs> Which would then make them an administrator account. Or does it? Yeah, it does. Okay, that's the only so that's kind of silly then. So... Why not? Uh, because you can just create an administrator account. So I think standard. So. Yeah. Managed with parental controls. This That's is right. what you want to do for the Wii ones. Sure. Because uh, it lets you block applications, block content, all sorts of things. And then a group account, which I'm um, not going to really bother with that. Um, one thing I did notice when creating the account is that it has a password suggestion icon, which is kind of interesting. I think that's a, I think it's been there for a while. It kind of helps you pick a, a decent password yeah. in their different categories. So you'll notice that next to the password field, there's a little little icon. You click on that, and it'll help you pick a nice password. 
But where I would look, just to get the uh, the authoritative word here, um, Mac OS X help creating a new user account. I'll link to to this article and explains the differences between the type of accounts. And a standard account, uh, standard account users cannot administer other accounts, but can install software. Okay, so that's cool for their own use and change settings related to their account. Sure, right. And I would say, in ge- you know, I don't know. I'm not going to change my ways. I'm it, still going to run as administrator. Yeah. Uh, though I did create a user account just to get the experience, and it, and it's different. And when I tried to click on certain things in system preferences, it would say, "Up, oh, up, oh, yeah, you got to give me administrator password to." Uh, right, to and do see, this. see, that's the that's the thing. And to me, again, somebody correct us if we're if we're wrong on this, but but the way I interpret it, when you when you went to say try to change network settings in system preferences, and you had a standard user account. It said, no, you can't give me your password to authenticate. You have to give me the password of a root user, of, of an administrator. It's not a root user, sorry, of an administrator user. And you could do that, and you type in the short username and the password, and boom, it lets you do what you're doing. To me, that's no different than having an administrator account and having to enter your own password unless you, uh, unless there, it's, a, it's a different person. Right. And you don't want a certain person to be able to do it. But for me, if I'm going to know the administrator password, well, why bother typing that? Then when I why not just use my own account? I mean, it's the same difference there. So so that that's my uh, that that's why that's why I live with the administrator stuff. And I'm totally happy with it. It hasn't burned me yet. And my guess is it hasn't burned many, if any people yet, because if it if it if it had significant impact, Apple would change it on their end and change the defaults. I guess. So yeah, so the standard account, so, so yeah, in a multi-user household or, or enterprise or whatever, I, I would I would tend to agree that a standard account is probably a, a good idea for y- your regular everyday user. Um, yeah. I, the I, person who, who is, who hopefully knows what they're doing or the owner or the administrator is is the one that will take action when you, you know, or, or you know, approach the computer when it does prompt for that admin password. So, so I, I think I would tend to agree with his point that Standard account should be the default uh, for for other users. For other users, yes, but not for the first main user. If it's yes. a single user yes. machine, no reason to. But yeah, multi users, absolutely. In fact, on the machine at the house, uh, I have an account for me, and which is an admin account, and then I have an account for Lisa, which I think is also an admin account because she's used to that on her machine. And then for the kids, I've got a kid's account. And then I also have like a it's a guest account, but not a guest account. It's it's an account for guests to use. And and the kids account and the account for guests to use are both standard user accounts and that and they have no password. Uh, That way, the kids or a babysitter or whatever can get on the machine. They can do what they want to do. But there's no hope of them mucking. Well, I mean, they're limited from being able to muck with system wide settings. And the guest account, I, if I'm not mistaken, at least under Snow Leopard, there was a warning because I'm looking at my machine right now and I have it disabled. I think there was a hole at one point there, where there was yeah. an issue with the guest account where you could actually delete data from other accounts. But I believe they patched that up. So I, I have it disabled, though. Yeah. Yeah, I do, too. I think it's All disabled right. by default. All right. Uh, our first sponsor for this show is Barebone Software with Yojimbo. Yojimbo is an information organizer for lack of a better term i use it uh for a lot of things i have i have you know i have it all in one place i have data for mac geek Cab. i have little text snippets for backbeat media i've got little text snippets for you know MacWorld expo coming up 
all and I can I'm able to organize them into little collections, but they're all in one place. And it's not just text. We have the audio files. In fact, Mike's uh, keychain password question was pulled, was played right from Yojimbo straight to uh, the show live here. Uh, we're able to organize the show notes there. I can put PDFs in. I can put images in and they all just appear in a big list and uh, I can sort them any way I want. I can find by name. I can find by content. And uh, and I, I couldn't live without it. It actually syncs all of the data, uh, no matter how large, using mobile me. And that way I've got Yojimbo on every computer. I prep the show down on my MacBook Pro in the office. I come up to the studio and boom, all the data is here, uh, right, ready for me to go. So this is Yojimbo from Barebones Software. Uh, it is available, of course, for a 30-day free trial. Once you're hooked, 39 bucks for an individual license. 69 bucks for a family pack, which I believe gets you three licenses and uh, educational. If you're a student or teacher or otherwise qualify, 29 bucks. So all available at barebones.com. Last show, John, we talked about defragging and Mr. X has uh, has a tip actually to share. Hey, Mr. X again. Um, <clears throat> I have a power mag G5 with two hard drives and uh, the second of the second drive, the data drive, I do defragment that on a regular basis because I use Pro Tools with it, and basically when I start recording, it'll want to grab up to eight chunks of up to about four gigabytes apiece, and then whatever it doesn't actually end up using of that, it frees back up again. So you run out of contiguous four gigabyte blocks pretty quickly, and things can get kind of gnarly after that. So anyway, I do run iDefrag on my G5 because I use Pro Tools with it. And uh, yeah, and anybody that works regularly with very large files like video or audio files um, is probably more prone to need uh, defragmenting a little more often. That's it. Bye. All right. Thanks, Mr. X. <laughs> that's that's uh, I, it sounds good to me, John. I, I, uh... I agree, and I actually do like his... Um strategy which uh yeah if you're doing this sort of work to have a, a drive uh, a separate drive just for manipulating large blocks of data or even in general you may want to have another drive to store your data and uh you know one drive for your apps and all that stuff and maybe you know yeah no i, I like that suggestion and then he brings up a good point when you're dealing with big whopping files either for sound or video that uh yeah things could get messy quickly cool all right, uh, moving on to Chris and John. I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you take this one because though we both are married to the solution that I believe we're both going to recommend, you you turned me onto it many many moons ago. Hey guys, this is Chris in Orlando. Um, you guys did an excellent job in recommending um, a program called a float for keeping the um, calculator always on top. I appreciate that. Uh, it's exactly what I needed, and it it uh, filled the order exactly. Another question I have has to do with uh, file folders. Uh, I do a lot of um, uploading of images throughout the week uh, using various websites uh, to upload these, uh, these images. And the frustrating uh, thing about this is that when I, uh, the process is, is that you choose the file folder and it immediately opens up Finder. I go to the uh, storage card from the images that uh, I took on the camera, and then I have to click through uh, a few more file folders to finally get to the image. 
and I do this uh, for about a half a dozen times, and then finally um, it decides to um, uh, immediately open up that file folder where the images are stored, and eliminating uh, me to click through two or three more file folders to get to that uh, file folder with those images. Uh, but then I have to go to another uh, website and load up images there, and I start this process all over again. I upload anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 images a week, uh, doing anywhere from 50 to 60 of these assignments. Um, so anything I can do to eliminate keystrokes or click strokes uh, is obviously, over a period of time, very time-saving. All right, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. I think, he, uh, I think we've got the point. John? Uh... Suffice to say that the answer to this problem, and I've been using it for, for years and years, and, uh, and I think you have too, Dave. I think I turned you on to it. You turned me on to it in OS 9 days. Oh, my gosh. I know. So, uh, so our friends at St. Clair Software make something called Default Folder 10. This is what you want. Um, and specifically, to his point, it has two choices. So what happens is it changes the, uh, the file dialog that comes up when you do a save or an open or, or anything like that. The two choices that he's going to like, so, so one is recent folders, so it actually remembers the folders that you've been to recently, but even better, and hence the name of the program, is you can make a choice saying use whatever your folder in as default folder. Voila. When you open a file dialog, you are right in the folder that you want to be. So to me, that, that in and of itself, because typically the built-in you know, file navigation in a lot of OSs is, isn't that wonderful or smart, and that goes to a place that, of course, you don't want. Um, the other feature that I really like about default folder is that when you open it up, um, I think it's an optional mode, but if you want to pick a folder that is on the desktop or visible on the desktop, if you hover over it and then you click, it'll snap default folder to that, which is just... So any of these modes, I think, would solve his problem. Yep, yep. And I've also found it... Uh the, the whole snapback thing where if I go to a folder, it, especially in Safari, this, this seems to happen because I have one machine. I don't know why I haven't installed default folder on it. Right. The iMac at the house. I, again, don't ask me why, uh, but I don't have it on there. And and what I notice the differences between that and the other machines that I use is if I'm in Safari and I go to navigate somewhere and I navigate there doing just what Chris describes. And and I get there. OK, great. I'm here. Now I do my thing. The next time I go to do that in Safari, I, it feels like it brings me somewhere else more often than not. And and with default folder on the machines that I use it, it just brings me right there. It, it's like right back to where I was. And I don't I don't know if that's just a fluky thing. I don't know if that is. I don't know if it's a problem that default folder fixes or if it's some other issue on that machine. But uh but I, I sure like the machines with default folder a whole lot better. And yeah, like you said, if you've got something open in the finder, you can just float your mouse and click on it and it brings the file dialog right to that location. It's awesome. Awesome. I, I, I'm the one thing I'll say is I'm shocked that Apple hasn't duplicated this functionality. And I guess they have to a degree, right, John? Because when you're in the finder, you have the folders that you can add to the, to the uh, sidebar of all the finder windows and those it's are available, better. right? <clears throat> you know, much that's a good point. If, if he doesn't want to get default folder, though, I think he should. Yeah. He could always create a, um, yeah, something in the sidebar that, that he can get to quickly as well to, uh, uh, yeah, drag a folder over there. Yeah. Yeah. And that does work. It's a poor man's default folder. I'll say, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. On to Rick with a, a good tip. Actually, we've talked about in the past, we talked about 
where if you have a recurring problem with, with your machine and you've brought it into Apple multiple times and you can document that, uh, then you can call Apple's customer relations, which is different from Apple Care, although it helps if the machine in question has Apple Care. You can call Apple's customer relations or sometimes the Apple Care reps will do this and you request, look, I've had problems with this. Effectively call the machine a lemon, though you may not choose to use that term. But, uh, you know, say, look, I've had enough problems. I've been very reasonable about it. Uh, I think we're at the point where, you know, this machine is due for replacement and they'll look at your account. And, you know, if it if it's warranted, they'll replace the machine. And Rick's going to explain a little bit more about that. And then something that you can do. It's a helpful hint. Hi, John and Dave. This is Rick from Long Island with a tip I found. If you're ever in the situation where Apple has decided that they are going to replace your broken computer. Uh, at first, I was happy that they were going to do it. Then I was unhappy because I was going to go from a top-of-the-line model to what was now going to be a bottom-of-the-line model. So I asked them, could I upgrade? And they said, sure. They will allow you to make almost any upgrade, and you just pay the difference on the retail price from the standard one that they offer you to what you want. So that way I was able to upgrade and end up with a top-of-the-line machine instead of the bottom-of-the-line that I was going to get. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks, Rick. And and what Rick points out is that Apple will try and spec match your machine. So, you know, if it's a year old, as you know, in his case, uh, it may be that the top of the line machine a year ago now has the same specs as, you know, essentially the same specs as the bottom of the line machine now. So that's why they went from his older top of the line to newer bottom of the line. Um, and, and like Rick said, he was able to pay the Delta and update. So upgrade. Which is good. Anything yep, to add? I, ha- I had it happen to me. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing was, my machine was like at the end of its life. It was my PowerBook G4. And, you, you got you timed that. You timed that as perfectly as I did with the iMac G5 that I replaced here in the studio. Yes. And I think when I bought it, I think I bought either the top of the line or close to the top of the line. So I got something where the clock speed was like doubled. So I, I, I was thrilled. And, sure. Uh, and from what I understand, the machine is, uh, yeah, it was the the most powerful PowerBook G4 that that you could get until uh, until they stopped making them. So uh, right. Excellent that Apple will will give you the opportunity to do that. They're they're pretty. I have to say, I mean, they're you. You can't ask for something unreasonable. You know, if you've had a problem where you know that you haven't even let them try to fix it yet, they're not going to replace it, right? But they are more than reasonable about replacing your machine. I've I've been through it. I have to say, I think I've been through two of them. Now, of course, I bought tons of machines from them, well, so they're okay with it. You know, well, with me, it was, I believe, six back and forths using uh, Airborne right. when Airborne existed. Uh, so they were already losing their shirts on overnight uh, mm-hmm. shipping and just time on the phone. And, and I said that to the guy at one point. I'm like, you know, you're losing money every second you talk to me. And he's like, yeah, I know. And, <laughs> yeah. and he did it for me. So, yeah, um, yeah they're, they're uh, you know, but. But again, six back and forths to me, I think, was was at the edge of what was considered reasonable to try to fix the problem. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. All right. Cool. Moving on. Matthew has a couple of answers and a couple of questions. Hey, John and Dave. Uh, nuts. All right. We're back. Let's see if uh, let's see if we can make this work again. I don't know what causes this stuttery, stuttery thing, John. I do. It's interrupts, but I don't know. You know, you know, when they started, funnily enough, when I upgraded from the iMac G5 as the recording machine to the iMac Intel, 
so they must handle hardware interrupts differently. And since then, it has been an issue that, that has uh, chronically plagued us. Here we go. Hey, John and Dave. In episode 227, you talk about ISTAP menus being a pain to set up on a... You know, I, I will stop again and say that Matthew's question has some of that ticking in it. Anyway. He has the crackle. He yes, he does. That's on his end. So we'll, we'll let him continue about it. ISTAP menus. New computer. I haven't tried it, but I would guess that you could just copy the preference file from a previous setup. This is called com.islayer.istatmenuspreferences.plist in your preferences folder. Also, I once asked you guys about how to get rid of the hollow stars in iTunes. These are a problem since they were messing up my smart playlists. I've since found out how to get rid of them. Over at Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes, there is a script called Album Rating Reset. Once run, this will get rid of the hollow stars on both albums and individual podcasts. Now I have a couple questions. Hi. One, in iTunes, is there a way to trim an episode of an audio or video podcast down to just certain parts and still keep it in with the other episodes of its podcast? And two... In front row, under podcasts, some of the podcasts are listed twice. For the most part, each will contain different episodes, though sometimes there is some overlap. For example, the Matt Geek Gab will show up twice, and episode 83 shows up under each, though the rest are different. Hope you guys can help, and thanks for all you do for the Mac users of the world. <laughs> You're too kind, Matthew. Thank you for your answers and tips and all of that. Um, all right. So first question, John, iTunes trimming. Uh, the only way that, well, that there's a couple, couple of things he could do here, but in iTunes, if you want to trim it down to just one section, I think you can do that by highlighting the song going into info for the song, which is file, get info, and then go to the options tab and edit the start and end times that will keep the file. It actually keep the file in intact, but only play the portions that, uh, you know, between those start and end times that you've set. Um, otherwise you're going to have to get an audio editor to, uh, to edit the file. If you're going to do that, you know, most podcasts are an MP3 or AAC. I like rogue amoebas fission because it allows you to non-destructively edit that MP3. So it's not going to re encode the MP3 when it saves it, which is actually magic. If you ask me, I, I think that's pretty cool. So, that's my that's my thoughts on it, John. What do okay. you have any thoughts? Uh, on quick thought: I, I do believe that the uh, uh, QuickTime player will let you, uh, you know, cut and paste or, or chop out parts of an audio file. Though, though I, I, I didn't take a moment to try it, or even GarageBand, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah, those are definitely that would definitely work. I've got but a, I don't believe they're non-destructive, and you, you got to, of course, you know, dig around and find out where the audio file is. So, uh, so I think either one of those, if you got those kicking around, but um, but I like what you said. Uh, non-destructive to me is always good because yeah, once once it's gone, it's gone. Well, and it, yeah, and it's compressed. It's compressed to begin with. Sorry, I got an oil truck backing up in my driveway right outside the window. Oh, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, so I, you know, I like the non-destructive thing, and I just think it's cool that they figured out how to do that. Because that's like magic, right? I mean, it, you know, to edit a compressed file and not change it. That's, I mean, that's, that's crazy, dude. Uh, all right, John. Our second sponsor for this show is a new sponsor for us. It's GoToAssist Express from Citrix. Now, uh, this is the same people that use GoToMyPC 
and also go to meeting, <clears throat> which many of us have probably used uh, for webinars and things like that. The idea is, you know, we've all been through this where, uh, or at least many of, well, we've all been through this on one end or the other. You're on the phone talking to someone and you either want to help them with their computer by reaching out over the phone and touching their computer, or they want to uh, reach out over the phone and you want them to touch yours to help you fix something. And be, having to walk someone through that over the phone can be a nightmare, right? I mean, we've all been through it. It's very frustrating. You're playing operator and you're not seeing, you're not, you know, asking someone to be your hands and eyes when they don't know what you're looking for is very, very difficult. So uh, definitely a huge time saver to be able to reach out and do this. And so that's exactly what GoToAssist Express does is it allows you remote access of a computer uh, with permission uh, without having to be there and without having to set anything up first. So, John, you and I tried this this morning. Now, I, I set it up as the controller and you were the controlee, right? Yep. And it was very easy. So you sent me. So what you had, you sent me a URL. Yep. A URL that you opened right in Safari. Right, John? Open up at Safari, and then it uh, it brought up a little Java icon. Um, the beauty of Java, of course, is it can run on multiple systems, including this is on my G5. Yep. But um, didn't think anything of it. Clicked, you know, gave it permission. There were a few dialogues asking for permission to do things. And, uh, of course, our friend Little Snitch, which I know you hate, came up and asked for permission on, I think it was pretty much your standard ports, 80, 443, and, and another one. That's so, great. Um, so I think that that's good because, you know, those should get through uh, and, any firewall. And, right. And it did. Right. Right. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. And so once once you gave permission, uh, it, it said on, on my end, all right, you know, here you go. And then, boom, I saw John's screen. I could interact. There was a little chat client. You, we could chat back and forth. And at any time, John had a big red X uh, on mm -hmm. his screen. He could hit that, and I was gone. There was, you know, totally uh, privacy, protective of the privacy. There is a way to set up an unattended session uh, there so that if you want to, you know, if you want to, if you want to give someone access to your computer while you're not there, that can always happen. Uh, you can try go to assist express free for 30 days by visiting go to assist.com slash gab at G a B all lowercase go to assist.com slash gab. And uh, we really appreciate them coming on board as a sponsor. I think it's a, it's a great fit for what, uh, for what we do here and for what you all do there. All right, John. So uh, are we going to go stay in questions or move on to tips? Um, we could do Brent. You want to? Yeah. Do, uh, All right. Sure. Yeah, this is good. Hey, John, I've got uh, two things. The first, I'll start off with a tip, and the second one's going to be a question. Uh, so I was looking at Omni Disk Sweeper on my MacBook Pro that has a, a 200 gigabyte internal hard drive. And I was looking in uh, slash private slash bar at a log file that was nearly 20 I gotta hold on to this I don't know what's causing this uh, alright we're back this is driving me crazy I don't, know, I don't know you know we went months without this plaguing us John and then now it's back now the thing is I'm still on leopard on this machine because I was afraid to update to snow leopard to make it worse but maybe uh, you know maybe it doesn't matter now alright we'll let Brent start over because because uh, I wanted to hear Hey, John and Dave, I've got uh, two things. The first, I'll start off with a tip, and the second one's going to be a question. Uh, so I was looking at Omni Disk Sweeper on my MacBook Pro that has a 200 gigabyte internal hard drive, and I was looking in uh, slash private slash var at a Samba log file that was 
nearly 21 gigs in size. And after digging around the Apple uh, discussion forums, I saw that there was a couple of threads going on it about other users having the same thing in Tiger or possibly Leopard. And this is a Snow Leopard machine, by the way, that uh, it's 21 gigs in size. And so is it safe to remove that with a cocktail or something like that or just remove it manually? Is uh, or to uh, have a cron job to automatically delete that once a week or every night, once a month, whatever else. So, why do the why does the file get to be that big for Samba? Um, is it automatically created anytime the Samba is sharing is turned on? What would your recommendation recommendations be to remove that file safely and to keep it small? Anyway, later, guys. All right. Thanks, Brent. Uh, all right, John, you uh, let's 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 actually hold off on his question on this and let's talk about what's happening here and maybe how to figure out why this file is continuing to grow. And then and then we'll answer the question. Well, Samba. So Samba, first, I do believe that that is your uh, Windows uh, print and file services. Correct. If you want to share your your disks or folders and uh, printers with Windows, you turn on when you turn on Windows sharing in the sharing tab. That's the service that it turns on is Samba, S-A-M-B-A. So, okay. My one thought, and I found an article that talks about this. I would the OS ten should be maybe not this file. I I don't know why, but should be with one of these maintenance maintenance tasks that it runs. Um, should be clearing that stuff out. And I did find an article, Mac OS X, How to Force Background Maintenance Tasks for Logs and Temporary Items. And this is certainly a log. Right. Although we've received mixed information on that, this article claims that OS X may not always run all of these maintenance tasks when it should. That's right. And if that's happening, this article tells you how to invoke, either invoke using OS X facilities or it mentions several third-party utilities that will whack them um of course you can go into that directory though, though from what i saw the files are locked down i think you'll have to do a sudo i like saying sudo i don't know I sudo yep and whack that particular log file um you cannot do it uh, another way to see this log file by the way and just to, to peruse them though i do like omni disk sweeper sweeper the console utility will let you see what's in your private slash var directory but as i mentioned a lot of, and it will give you a delete option but for those files it does not again they're locked down for some reason i guess maybe because they're in private which Hmm. Yeah. So th- those are a couple of my thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think opening up console and taking a look at this log file may give you an indication as to a how old it is, right? Because you can scroll all the way to the top and see what the earliest date stamp is. Usually, these log files, every entry has a time and date stamp, so you can get a feel for okay, is it getting rotated by these system facilities and just growing at an alarming rate, or has it been years since this file's been whacked? But you'll also, if you scroll down to the bottom and scroll to the most recent entries, uh, you should see what's been added to it or what's currently being added to it over and over and over again. And, and it might give you indication to say, oh, hey, wait, you know, if it if if it's just, you know, every second reporting to the file, uh, unable to uh, open this folder, unable to open this folder, unable, you know, you might say, oh, maybe the permissions on that folder aren't right. And now it's reporting this to the log file, you know, over and over and over again, ad nauseum. Right. So that that that's the first place I would look. Then, yeah, I would use something like cocktail, uh, 
or Onyx. I like Onyx because it's free, but uh, but cocktail also works. It was my previous favorite. And uh, and I'd, I'd you know, uh, run the periodic scripts or you can use Omni. I guess Omni Disk Sweeper won't won't whack that file. Right, John? Is that what you said? But uh, it should. I think you might have to authentic. You might have to authenticate his root. So got to do yeah, it. Can I look at the user. permissions and yeah. they seem to be for the most part read only. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it may ask you for permission to uh, to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, but you're safe to whack it. The one thing is sometimes with these uh, Unix services, if you go and delete their log file while they're running, that that's fine. But it may not create a new log file until the service starts again. So you may have a situation where the service thinks it's logging to a file that no longer exists. And so it just goes away. Um, I, that's what I've seen with with other things. I've never tried it with Samba, but you may not care. In fact, Brent, that may be desirable behavior because then at least you don't have a log file growing. Uh, so maybe you maybe you create an Apple script that does it and run it at startup. So it goes and blows away the log file and then there's nothing for it to write to. And you're in good shape unless, of course, you need your Samba logs. All right. Uh, let's go to follow ups here, John. Uh, okay, on, I got in the, one. In the last show, yeah, go ahead. I'm so excited because I figured this out. So, and unfortunately, Ben did not leave an email address. So I hope you're listening. Oh, I have him. I have Ben's email address, but I but he listens. Oh. Yeah, ben, ben is excellent. Yeah, this so uh, to to prep it right in the last show. Ben from the PMUG Princeton Mac Users Group uh, had a question about VirtualBox and printers. Right, John, where he could he could use his printer sometimes, but but not others. And it depended on his networking settings, whether he was sharing right. or getting his own IP address. OK, yeah, right. Got it. So um, I'm going to admit that the initial advice that I gave Ben was not very good. <laughs> All um, right. Well, I kind of dismissed it as, you know, I don't have problems with this. So why should why should you? Um, number one. So he was talking about being in VirtualBox and having printing issues. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to try this just because this is kind of bugging me because I've never had a problem with it. And I mapped my uh, my laser printer, which uses TCP/IP or TCP, um, was able to print to it just fine from VirtualBox as a you know as a as a printer. And I'm like, cool. And then I just got the shiny new HP B8550 Photo Smart printer, and it's hooked up to my time capsule, and it is shared using Bonjour. Now, of course, Windows or at least Windows XP doesn't have Bonjour built in, so I downloaded. And a side note, Bonjour for Windows does work under Windows 2000, which he said he was using. So even though uh, you know, I said you should probably go up to XP. I don't think that was the problem. Or, or was not the problem. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not the problem. Here was the problem. So while I was trying to solve this, and I'm going to give a, a, a tip of the hat to Philip, because as I was trying to solve this, I, I was on the right path. So I tried to add the printer. When you in, install Bonjour for Windows, you get a, a, a little thing called Bonjour Printer Assistant, I believe. And so I ran that. Up comes, you know, HP PhotoSmart B8550. I'm like, great, it sees it. That's cool. Um, go to the next dialog, which then asks for the printer driver. And then all of a sudden it said, oh, the printer's gone. Sorry. And I'm like, what? Here's huh. the problem. Okay. Here's the problem. Then I'm like, you know, I'm going to have to just read the documentation. Now, as we pointed out before, what happens is by default, which works for most purposes, uh, VirtualBox will do a NAT connection. And I verified that. So so my my Mac had 172.whatever. And the address within VirtualBox was 10 dot whatever. So it was like doing a NAT to NAT. Okay, just, to, just to, 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 to make sure we're keeping everybody in the loop here. Mm -hmm. NAT is the magic technology that lets one device share its IP address with many others. Usually used by your router, gets an address from the cable modem, shares it to all your computers. In this case, your computer, it comes, you know, 
Cable modem gets a router. Cable modem gives you a router and IP. Router shares it to your Mac. Mac shares it inside the Mac to VirtualBox. So we had this double layer of NAT network address translation. Go ahead, John. Which for TCP traffic, which is, uh, you know, your browser and connecting to that other printer, that works great. Then I'm like, oh, boy, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to read the documentation. So I read the documentation for VirtualBox, and I don't know if this is a VirtualBox issue or a, a NAT to NAT issue, but it said, oh, and by the way, NAT doesn't really reliably or will drop UDP packets. The thing is, Bonjour for Windows uses UDP. This right. explains why the printer was appearing and disappearing. So, and, and then I got a, a, just as I was going down this path, I, uh, we got an audio comment, which you'll see from Philip. And he hit the nail on the head just as I was hitting the nail on the head. Okay. Going into VirtualBox, shutting down the virtual machine, then going into the settings. If you go to the network settings, I changed the method of grabbing an address or the interface definition from NAT to bridged. And then it gives you a choice of which interface would you like to bridge to. And it lists uh, a bunch of them. And I was using wireless or airport at the time. So I said, all right, you know what? Bridge to my airport instead. So restarted VirtualBox. I looked. And then my IP address was as if it was another computer. It was another 172 address. Okay. So it was now, instead of getting an IP address from your Mac, it was getting an IP address from the router and, and an equal participant on the network now. Yes. Okay. And then I went to add the printer. It showed up, went to add the driver. It stayed there, went to print a page to it. Everything worked great. So the solution here, and, and I don't see any reason why you wouldn't want to do bridged. Uh, NAT is a good thing to start with, but well, one reason you wouldn't want to, you would want to do bridged is, is if you're, you know, want to talk to UDP devices. So NAT is probably good for most uses, but if you're doing anything beyond basic surfing and TCP IP work, you may want to choose a bridged interface instead. I've, I've, I noticed with, with not just with VirtualBox, but with most of the uh, Windows, you know, virtualization stuff, parallels and VMware, when I look at the default settings and I'll, I'll be the first to admit I haven't used, uh, actually, I just installed VMware over at the house, but I didn't look at the network settings because it simply worked. Uh, but I think by default, they all use this NAT thing. Now, that's probably the safest bet because the assumption is if your Mac is able to get on the Internet, then there's no question your Windows machine is able to get on. You know, if uh, if you set it to bridged and you're in some sort of corporate environment where, you know, the router might say, hey, wait a minute, why is this uh, one Ethernet device requesting two IPs and it might reject one? And then you've got this crazy thing where you're like, well, how come it doesn't work? You know, my Mac works. So th my guess is that's why. The NAT setting is a default, but in your home, definitely you're better off bridged. I agree with you 100 percent, John. You know, um, you know, maybe traveling, you want to use NAT, right? So that you don't get this weird double IP thing happening and, and you don't because you don't know the management of the network. But if you've got a standard, you know, Apple or Linksys or Netgear router in your house, they don't care. They'll sign up to usually like 50 or more addresses, depending on how you have them configured. You're not going to run out of address space, so. I think I think you're cool doing it that way. Yeah. So case closed. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. You know, let's. OK, so his case is closed. Let's let's talk about this. Have you compared, uh, John, virtual virtual box is similar to VMware uh, Fusion and Parallels. It is a way of running Windows or other OSs uh, on the Intel architecture on, of your Mac. So it's not emulating 
the uh, a Windows computer. It's virtualizing it and allowing those OSs to talk while inside your your Mac. The the one key difference about VirtualBox is it's free. Uh, have you done any comparison, John, between VirtualBox and Fusion or VirtualBox and Parallels and uh, just kind of feature parody or anything like that? I have. So uh, with, with things, recent recent versions or. Yes. Has, OK. Absolutely. OK. Cool. Yeah, I did one thing at work where actually someone was like, you know, we got this program that runs on the PC and I want to see if it runs in a Mac VM. And, uh, you know, can you hook up this device and, and see how it works? Great. Yeah. The USB support in VirtualBox for non printer devices um, is lacking because okay. I, I ran something that did not work under VirtualBox. It just did not see this USB device. Now, again, it was a non-standard device. It wasn't a you know, printer sure. or something like that. Sure, so, but it worked in, in one or both of the in others? VMware. Okay. It worked fine in, in VMware Fusion. Okay, so, cool. Um, Interesting. Another thing I think VirtualBox is lacking is that I it, it doesn't seem to be able to grab, it, it only seems to be able to grab about half of the RAM that's in your machine. Ah, okay. And my V is only set up for two gigs because I have four gigs in my MacBook Pro. Sure. Um, another thing is that I think the graphic support is lacking, though they have experimental 3D drivers. So if you're a gamer, VirtualBox may not be, or, or doing anything that's uh, graphic intensive, I don't think VirtualBox is your best choice. On Got the it. other hand, the price is right. So right. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. VMware Fusion, I had the the best, uh, you know, the best experience with when I was doing this uh, this this test. For, yeah, to to for be someone. fair and or to be thorough, I don't really care about being fair. Uh, did you try Parallels uh, as well? No. Okay, no, all right. So this was just a VirtualBox Fusion comparison. So we d we don't know how how Parallel stacks up there. Okay. Yeah, I, I couldn't find it in the pile of a uh, pile of stuff I have in the office here. So. Sure. Well, you know that that's that's uh, it's one of those things. You know, next week at MacWorld Expo, they these software oh, companies yes. and hardware companies they shower us with this stuff. But uh, and sometimes it's a real pain. But but it does turn out to be very handy for situations like this, where it's not something you would go out and buy because you're going to use it regularly. But for testing, it's like, oh yeah, is it in my, you know, is it over in that cabinet that just has boxes of software? Yeah, all right, I'll install it. If not, hmm, nope. Okay. So, so the vendors keep the love, keep the love flowing. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that if I'm going to use a piece of software for my work or for for recreation or whatever, I buy it. But, oh, likewise. You know, but if it's if it's something where you know. It, it, I'm not going to use it, but I don't buy it, but it, it, like you just pointed out, it's handy to have this stuff around. So, uh, so interesting, interesting. Okay, cool. I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad we headed down this path because that's, that's probably valuable. I would say to, to, to sum it up, at least comparing it to VMware fusion, virtual box is great. If you simply want to run very standard, you know, windows, non-gaming applications occasionally or browse occasionally, but otherwise, you know, the, the reality is you're going to spend money on on Windows anyway, because you got to mm -hmm. buy the Windows OS. So, uh, you know, the, the extra little bit for Fusion or Parallels to have a, a more robust system might be might be a better a better option. But, you know, if you got a free copy of Windows sitting around from an old Windows machine, hey, virtual box and you're golden. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, Dan, last show, we talked about. Uh, we lamented actually about the uh, lack of good money management software, personal finance software on the Mac. And many of you wrote in about this next thing that uh, we'll let Dan share. And I couldn't be more thrilled. I haven't tried this yet, but I'm very intrigued. 
Hey, John, Dave, this is Dan calling from Kingston, Ontario in Canada. I'm listening to episode 241, where one of your callers called in reference to finance software for the Mac platform. Well, I was a Quicken user like uh, yourself and that caller for years, and I switched over to the Mac. In doing so, I uh, did some digging and found a program by the name of Money Dance, moneydance.com. I've been using that for a couple of years now. Their latest release was just out to... About a month ago, it has filled the household finances perfectly. Very, very powerful uh, program. Uh, Lots of reports and accessories uh, within it. And soon to be released, as per their blog, is the iPhone app. To uh, So if you're on the road, you're on the run running the roads or you travel quite a bit, you can do your uh, finances on the iPhone. And it syncs up Wi-Fi directly to the application. Everything is put in. Uh, looking forward to that. And, uh, this is where you can cut me off. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks, Dan, man. I, I went and looked at this. It does online banking. It'll import from Quicken. Uh, if, if it lives up to even half the claims that it has, the screenshots look great. Uh, I, like I said, I'm really excited. I'm going to get through tax season here because I've got a system that, you know, just gets me through tax season. Uh, but, uh, but then I'm going to experiment. I'm going to import our, you know, Quicken data file with 15 years of data in and, uh, and, and I'm going to I'm going to mess with this because, you know, Quicken supposedly coming out with their next rev of their Mac software in February 2010. Well, John, we are in February 2010. Now, they might be planning to announce something at Macworld Expo next week. I honestly don't know. But, uh, you know, the fact that Dan said an update for Money Dance came out last month that actually added features as opposed to just fixed bugs certainly makes me a lot more optimistic about that than what we've seen from Intuit over the years. You still with me, John? I'm with you. Okay, I was I I wasn't I was almost ready to blast off into a rant, but uh, but I, I think I I think I, I said I, my piece. They're getting there. They're getting oh so close. Into it's getting close. No, dude, they 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 fell off that bridge a long time ago, and they're trying to climb back on. What is it like the the Duke Nukem Forever of? Uh... <laughs> wow, I like that. Because I think people are still, you know, even though I think they pretty much said we're closing up shop, there's still people saying, oh, but I got another trailer that shows uh, the latest. <laughs> That's right. That's if right. You, people don't. I think this is a game that has been on the Windows radar for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they actually had a write up recently in Wired about what a what a train wreck the development process has been. When it finally comes out, it's going to be this fully immersive virtual reality 3D experiment experience where when you get shot, you actually bleed. I think that's I think that's when it finally comes out the technology will be there. All right, but on that note, Dave, I think we gotta talk about how you wanna get in touch with us. That's right. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the place for all of you to email us, unless you're a premium subscriber, in which case premium at MacGeekGab.com is the place to email. I think you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com, but you heard me. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Or you could call us, and the number is 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. Uh, you can see the great show notes that are put together every oh, week. Thank you. Uh, by our own Mr. John Braun at MacGeekGab.com. Uh, I tweet out an alert on Twitter, if I may take a. Uh, yeah, yeah. So on Twitter, if you follow MacGeekGab, as soon as the show notes are done, I send out a little tweet saying, come and get them. So uh, if you would like an instant notification, because sometimes, depending on what's happening in my life, it, it, it may not come out immediately. So, sure. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, Twitter. Let's see. Twitter.com slash MacGeekGab for, for that. Twitter.com slash John F. Braun for John. Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton for me. Twitter.com slash Pilot Pete, even though we haven't seen him in a while. And Twitter.com slash MacObserver for all the uh, other stuff. We are going to be at Macworld Expo next week. Uh, Thursday night is our party. Friday night is the Macworld Blast Party at which Paul Kent's uh, Silicon Valley House Rockers are going to play. Now, both of these parties require a ticket, and those tickets are not necessarily easy to get. Uh, for Cirque du Mac, we do have the secret link, uh, but it, it's tight right now. I'm not sure how many more we can add. Doesn't hurt to try it out, though, because, uh, you know, you never, you never know. So sign up at the secret link, but I can't make any promises. However, John and I will be on the show floor Thursday, 12.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, doing a live Mac Geek Up. We'd really like it if you come to that. And uh, usually after that, we're both quite uh, gregarious and generous, and we will almost certainly have tickets not only for our own Cirque du Mac party that night, but we will also have tickets to give away for the blast party that Macworld is throwing the following night. So, uh, so there you go. Definitely, definitely come check that out. Sp- I, I do want to take a minute to thank the sponsors for Cirque du Mac this year. That's Verbatim, Circus Ponies, Smile on My Mac, Microsoft, Accelerate, and Project Wizards with Merlin. So uh, thank you to all of them, and thank you to all of you for, uh, for everything that you do iPhonealley.com is where Michael Johnston is when he's not converting the shows to AAC for you here. Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com provides all the bandwidth. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, PDF Pen from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and go to assist.com slash gab for a 30-day free trial of GoTo Assist Express. That wraps it up, John. It's time to get on with our, our real days here. Yep, yep. Because this is like this is like our 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 our, our fun time. I, I love these shows. I really do like the morning shows. Mm-hmm. It's fun. See you next week from Macworld Expo. And if uh, if you're traveling out there, be careful going through a security theater. Don't get caught. Made up.